Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Political polarization is making us miserable. Surveys show that Americans have become more fearful and hateful of supporters of the opposing political party and imagine they hold much more extreme views than they actually do. And we prefer to date and marry those of similar opinions. We're less willing to spend time with people on the other side. Well, how can we loosen the grip of this toxic polarization and start working on our most pressing problems? In his book, The Way Out, social psychologist Peter Coleman blends personal accounts from his years working on entrenched conflicts with lessons from leading-edge research to provide a guide to breaking free from the cycle of mutual contempt in order to build uh, better lives, relationships, and a country. Peter Coleman is professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, where he holds a joint appointment at the Teachers College and the Earth Institute. He directs the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. He's founding director of the Institute for Psychological Science and Practice and is co-executive director of Columbia University's Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity. Uh, Professor Coleman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I, I went and watched your presentation uh, online when you uh, came to BYU recently, so thanks for coming back to Utah, quote-unquote. Uh, oh, it was a, a beautiful place to visit. Yeah. Um, so you, uh, you, you, the dedication <laughs> resonated with me. I count myself in this 86%. I'll just read this. This book is dedicated to the 86% of Americans who are currently exhausted, miserable, and desperately seeking a way out of our culture of contempt. Uh, I think that does describe a lot of us, right? Exhausted and miserable. Yeah, that that's a, there's a survey done by a group called More in Common, and they've been studying, you know, American polarization. And that's what they find is that there are, you know, different subgroups within America. It's not just a block of red and blue Americans, but there are different what they call hidden tribes. And the middle groups... Um, which uh, are, are approximately 86% of the population, are these you know, individuals that are not extreme on their views. They lean left or lean right, but they really are fed up. They're tired, exhausted. They don't want to see dysfunction in Washington anymore, and they just want to find ways to you know, problem-solve and work with other people um, and you know, are just not happy with the fact that half of Americans feel alienated or estranged from somebody in their own family because of our current political divides. Really resonated with something you wrote in Yes Magazine. You wrote an op-ed piece there, um, or a piece in Yes Magazine, where you recounted a personal experience. We, we, we turned the corner. You went to a tennis tournament, right, the U.S. Open. Yeah. I wonder if you could tell that story. Yeah, well, so, you know, I was watching a young Greek player who is, you know, a phenom and a rising star and a fantastic tennis player. Um, and then, you know, learned at some point that he had become a, you know, sort of a vocal anti-vax, you know, uh, advocate and had said a lot of things publicly that his government, the Greek government, had to disavow and distance themselves from him. You know, and again, I, I so my reaction immediately was frustration. Like, why are you using your platform to tell people not to take care of themselves? You know, so immediately my politics got in the way of my enjoying and appreciating tennis, which I love to watch and, and play. Um, and it, you know, and that's what's happening is today these divisions, these us-them divisions, whether it's weaponization of, you know, masks, mandates or vaccines or whether it's, 
you know, critical race theory or, how, you know, how we raise our kids. But almost everything uh, that comes up, even Ukraine, when the war in Ukraine initially broke out, that initially was sort of weaponized as Joe Biden's fault versus Putin's fault, you know. Everything in our life starts to trigger us, and we, you know, find ourselves on one side or the other on these conversations. So it it, it does. It permeates every aspect of our life. You cite a study that says 70% of Americans, both red and blue, report that politics is stressing them out. Uh, This was shocking to me. 4% in that study uh, reported having suicidal thoughts related to politics. Yeah, I mean, the the effects of this kind of toxic dynamic, particularly if you think about, you know, you're estranged from people in your family, probably your workplace, probably your neighbors, you know, people are physically moving away from each other into, you know, into their political tribes, literally, even within urban areas and cities across the country, you see red Americans moving into red neighborhoods and blue into blue neighborhoods, you know, so we're, we're, the, the effects of these things are showing you know, higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicide ideation. You know, we are we're a messed up culture, and it's not only our political polarization, but you know, certain COVID and the, you know the shutdown, stay at homes had effects on that. But when you start to lose the people in your life that you talk to about these things and become estranged from them for political purposes, it all adds up, and it leads to extremely high levels of stress and and ultimately of enmity and frustration against the other side. So uh, some people's reaction is just to retreat totally, right? Uh, Or retreat into your tribe or just pull back completely. But, you know, as we've been saying, you you really can't get away from this. And it's it's kind of this pervasive. It's making us sick. Um, This has been coming along uh, for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, the pattern is if you depending on what you're measuring, but affective polarization, which is you know like like for your group and disdain for the other group, has been growing in America since the mid 1970s, uh, and we see it in D.C. as well in the incapacity of our leaders to come together and pass bipartisan you know legislation. So these patterns um, and others like them um, have been getting stronger and stronger since the mid to late 1970s. But today, they're, you know, they're in this sort of extremely urgent place where, you know, 80 percent of Biden and Trump voters see elected officials on the other side as, quote, presenting a clear and present danger to American democracy. Large majorities of Biden and Trump voters favor secession from the union. They want their states to kind of create a different country. And more importantly, or most concerning, is that, you know, that there's a large percentage of Americans that are ready to resort to violence, you know, against them. They see the other side as the biggest threat to American democracy, not climate change, not, you know, racial injustice, not COVID, not the economy. You know, it's really them, the other side. And that's, you know, parallel to where we were in the 1850s in America, right before the U.S. Civil War. So we're in an acutely dire place, and we all need to sort of take responsibility for turning the temperature down. That's a key point you make. Uh, Politicians are probably not going to save us, right? In fact, a lot of politicians are using this for for their own purposes. It's going to have to be up to us, you and I, I guess, uh, individually. 
Yeah, I mean, divisive politics, you know, or negative attacking and negative campaigning um, works to some degree in that it can mobilize your base and it can, you know, especially in a two-party system like ours, if we make them the enemy, it mobilizes our side on our behalf. So politicians are kind of addicted to that model. Um, And, you know, many of them use these divisions or create these divisions or at least accentuate them as ways to get political gain. So it really is going to fall on that middle exhausted majority of citizens that say enough of this. We want to take back our democracy, have more reasonable conversations, get some problems solved, you know, take on things like extreme weather events. And, you know, all the challenges that we're facing are being, you know, our solutions to them are being obstructed by this, you know, political sickness that we're all suffering from. Of course, the title of the book is The Way Out, the subtitle, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. I think you make a differentiation, don't you? Uh, Polarization itself can have some purposes. Toxic polarization is what's making us sick. what's, What's the definition of toxic polarization? Yeah, so polarization is not a bad thing. You know, in a two-party system, you want to have people on both sides, passionate, true believers with a lot of information that are challenging each other and kind of pushing us forward to create policies that, you know, are encourage stability and respect for history and allow us to move forward as a country and solve new problems. But when the side and you know in the 1950s there there was too little political polarization between the parties they were very similar and people were calling for more distance between them of course today since the mid-1970s we've been getting growing farther and farther and farther apart in our attitudes and our opinions and how we feel about the other side how we think about problems and that becomes toxic you know it becomes toxic into ourselves and our families and our communities and ultimately to our nation if it impairs our capacity to solve the major problems that we face in our lives so uh how did we get here i guess I'll spend a little time on that how did we get stuck in this toxic polarization yeah well so there there's a there's the the simple answer and the complicated answer i'll give you a little of both the simple answer is that well the complicated answer is that if you read on how we got this polarized, everybody that writes a book or writes an article on this tells you the thing that they think that matters. It's value differences between red and blue Americans. It's differences in, you know, that conservatives' brains are slightly more sensitive to threat messages than progressives. So it's that difference. It's authoritarianism. It's gerrymandering. It's the media that we consume and the entertainmentization of media. It's algorithms on the Internet that sort us into red and blue. And it's the fact that we're physically moving away from each other. All of those pieces of how we got so stuck are valid. But really what the answer is is that these things start to kind of act as a system. They act together. They kind of There are these vicious cycles of how we certain problems, how we feel about the other side, the beliefs we hold, people we talk to and the people we don't talk to, the news we watch versus the news we don't watch, all of those things start to kind of feed each other in dynamic ways that create this almost like addiction to outrage, um, which in fact they find parallels between feeling a sense of outrage against another side and a taste for retaliation triggers the same kinds of areas of our brain that narcotics trigger. So there is an addictive quality to all of this 
just within us, but it's bigger than just us. It's not just how I feel and react to political information. It's, again, you know, it's what I call a biopsychosocial structural problem. It's within me and my biology and my neurology and what I pay attention to and what I don't. It's in my psychology, and then it's in my relationships and the media I consume and the places I travel and the places I don't travel. All of those things really contribute to this decades-long pattern of us increasingly hating the other half of America and, you know, so many people preparing for war. That's interesting. Uh, you say it's useful to to view this as as an addiction, and I, you know, you, I guess you can see that uh, you get you get something back from the outrage. I guess you do. There is a momentary pleasure to feel a sense of you know righteous justification against the other and blame them for all the problems. There's some temporary relief in that, but ultimately, you know, it's it's a it's a false process. It's not accurate. It doesn't help us move forward. And just becoming addicted to blame and outrage, you know, again, many of the industries, entertainment industries, you know, some of the major news platforms and certainly the, the Internet platforms, they understand that this is an addictive substance and they, they weaponize that. They use that to keep us addicted and keep us on their platforms or watching their programs. And that's part of the problem is that, you know, the, there are these major structural forces is, forces and markets and big businesses that are playing on us and, and pulling us apart. You talk about the in, outrage industrial complex. I, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, I immediately <laughs> yeah. knew what you're talking about when you said that, right? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, again, it is that there are business models in, for example, the entertainmentization of news media. I mean, it used to be that news media was a you know was a loss for most networks they did it for the common good they didn't do it to you know get revenues in it really was just to inform the public but then in when when 60 minutes started to make a profit because it was, you know, it was a news program news you know uh, networks started to think hey we can make money on the news let's make it as sens- sensational and provocative and addictive as we can, and then of course we have now 24-hour news news cycles, and so you know there's there are all these incentives, and not just in the media but in social media as well, which are essentially part of their business models. And these things are, are you know oftentimes are unchecked. They're more checked in news media um, because there's some regulatory processes um, with news programs, but much less with social media. You know they're just not checked yet in, on social media. Now, uh, part of the good news is there are quite a few groups working on this, right? Um, yeah. But uh, in, in some cases, not quite the best approach. Others have a really good approach. We'll get into that. Uh, you talk yeah. about, uh, could you talk about uh, cloud problems versus clock problems? Yeah, so that's what I'm, what I try to communicate is, you know, as I described earlier, this is a complicated set of problems that we're facing that are working in concert to pull us apart. And we usually think of those kinds of, you know, dynamics as clocks that we can fix by just finding the thing we need to do and fixing it, and then everything will be okay. And so some of the well-intentioned, you know, dialogue groups in this country are saying, you know, okay, just, you know, just find somebody on the other side, go and have a beer with them and talk about Donald Trump and you'll, you'll work it out. You'll realize that you're, you know, you're humans and you have kids and families, you'll humanize one another. 
And that usually works. Usually people that don't know, you know, members of different groups that don't know each other, if they just get together and meet, it, it can change how they feel about the other group or the other side. But under conditions like this where there are so many things pulling us apart, then to encourage people to go off and just have a cup of coffee and talk, you know, if you have an anti-Trumper and a pro-Trumper, have them have a conversation, what they find is that the vast majority of those backfire. And most people leave those conversations feeling more frustrated and alienated and feeling like, you know, they're psychotic. So those things, those kinds of encounters don't help when you have what Karl Popper, who is a philosopher of science, called cloud problems. These are not just the fact that we haven't met each other and talked. It's the fact that there is this constellation of things, the news, the Internet, our social networks, how we think, how we feel, how we've been socialized. All of these things are operating together. Those are cloud problems, and they, they work in a very different way. So part of what, why I wrote this book is I feel like you know many Americans and many well-intentioned organizations that are trying to deal with our polarization, they don't really understand the nature of this problem, the immensity of the problem. And they have to think differently about how to affect, you know, positive change. You give an example. This was helpful to me, uh, uh, the complexity and how this is a system uh, of a guy in a diner. I wonder if you could uh, uh, talk about yeah. talk about that it's from an individual and then it becomes, uh, you know, more complex. Yeah, so all I'm saying is, you know, I try to explain to people how, you know, this complex constellation of things that I keep describing, how it settles into patterns that just affect our lives, you know, kind of attractive or addictive patterns. And I use the example of you, you know, say you go into your favorite diner on a Saturday morning, you sit down, you order a breakfast, you're really, you know, happy to be there and happy to have your favorite breakfast. And in, in walks some guy we've never seen before. And he decides to come over and sit down, you know, not just on the counter near you, but directly next to you. And in doing so, kind of spreads out, you know, and kind of touches your space and touches your arm and, and seems clueless about it. So initially that happens. All right, no big deal. You know, whatever. It's a nice day. You're excited about your breakfast. You don't know this guy. It doesn't really matter. And you could respond in any way. But over time, you may sit there and start to notice that what he's wearing, how he's kind of being abusive to the staff and sort of demanding. And you start to think, oh, well, this is this guy's a jerk. Right. And so you may start to kind of not even say anything, but, you know, huff a little bit, roll your eyes, maybe even push back on the arm a little bit. So suddenly the two of you are in this kind of dispute, even though you haven't said a word yet. And then you learn he's moved to town and he comes back and he comes with friends of his. And you at some point notice that they're kind of reacting to news in a specific way that communicates to you, oh, he's one of them. He's a member of that party or he's, you know, a member of that religious group or that whatever you name it, you know, the other. Then it gets bigger and bigger. And what happens over time is something as silly as the fact that he sat down next to you and touched your arm, starts to grow and grow a sense of grudge and resentment that connects to these other things like the political divisions that I've been describing. And when that happens, it's really almost impossible not to see this individual or even just a friend of his and feel just like you fall into a sense of you know contempt 
feeling of contempt for them. So it takes a while for these, these things to happen. They happen over time. But sometimes even minor things like this, when they connect to like political differences or you know differences in your attitudes towards race relations, et cetera, when it connects to those things, it draws us in. And it's really hard for us not to react in strong emotional ways to people on the other side. I guess that complexity, that's that's perhaps the reason why I go off and have a cup of coffee with the guy on the other side. That doesn't tend to work. It, it, again, it can work. What usually happens is it can work for a small period of time while you're getting to know each other until somebody says something that just triggers you. This happened with uh, a reporter that tried to bring a, a Trump supporter and anti-Trump together, and they initially it went very well until somebody mentions Colin Kaepernick. And as soon as the, the, the protest that was happening with the NFL quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, around Black Lives Matter. And when that was mentioned, things blew up. The men started to scream at each other, swear, and stormed out and refused to talk to each other again. So that's an extreme example. But, you know, most people in these conversations, particularly if you get into should we build a wall or not build a wall? Or is Donald Trump a man of integrity or is he a con man? Or, you know, you get into these kinds of conversations, people get triggered. And it really, you know, it, we fall into these valleys of contempt. And then, yeah, it's, it's just getting together is insufficient. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll start getting into solutions. You do put forward some uh, solutions. After all, the book's called The Way yeah. Out. Uh, subtitle is How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Uh, Peter Coleman is our guest. He's the author of that book. He's professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. Uh, holds a joint appointment at Teachers College and Earth Institute. He directs the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. We'll have more following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We have uh, with us uh, Peter Coleman. He's, he's professor of psychology and education at Columbia University and uh, director of the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. Uh, his latest book is The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. So, uh, Professor Coleman, you study uh, societies that are highly divisive and uh, that uh, change. Some of them can change, right? Um, so yeah. what, what are the key factors? How, how do these societies change for the better? Yeah, uh, thank you. I'm glad we have time to get to that, because that is why I wrote the book, is to help people have a sense of optimism about what they can do today. So the, the, we, do st we have studied societies that were stuck in even civil wars or civil strife for long periods of time, and then at some point change. Like they change course dramatically sometimes. Costa Rica did this in 1948. You know, it's happened in Botswana and Mozambique and uh, Mauritius and, and Africa and various countries, you know, Scandinavian countries. At some point, nations decide let's figure out how to unify. And there are three conditions that help with that. One is, again, when you have a, a group um, of people that are, you know, fed up, that are exhausted and fed up and, you know, don't want the status quo and really want to change. And as we said earlier, the good news is that a lot of Americans are miserable. They don't like the current way of relating to an, each other or of how we do politics, and they want a, a, a different way. So that's good news. Another factor that, that we've seen in these nations and societies that change 
are there's oftentimes some kind of major what they call political shock, some kind of destabilizing thing that really has people begin to question their basic assumptions about their life and how they treat other people and how they, you know. And it's like when an addict hits bottom, you really become sort of destabilized in, in, a, in a time like that. And again, we're in a time coming out of COVID, you know, with heightened awareness of racial injustice. And, you know, 50, yet last year, 50 million people voluntarily left their jobs, right? They decided to change their life dramatically. So we are in a time when, you know, people are starting to ask basic questions about what kind of life do they want to have, family life, community life. And so people are ready for, you know, doing something different. But the third condition that they need to capitalize both on misery and feeling destabilized is they need a clear sense of what to do. What is it about how, if I feel triggered by somebody else, what do I do? What are the you know, what's an alternative or a different way of responding or a different option that can make a difference. And that's why I wrote The Way Out. The Way Out basically studies these societies and says there are there are five things that individuals and families and communities can do from science that scale up. It means there are things you can do in your life and, again, in your family, in your neighborhood, in our nation. Um, but there are kind of scientific principles that I summarize in the book that provide us with some sense of what to do. What are the actions to do to take a different path? Well, let's uh, let's go through those. I think there are at least five, right? Um, yep. Uh, so the the first one uh, you call reset, right? You you mentioned Costa Rica. This is uh, yeah. I, I was I wonder you you answered a question I've had for a long time. Central America, all those nations in my lifetime have been involved in conflict, except for Costa Rica. And I wondered, I wondered yeah. why. So to tell me why. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a really good example because you know it, it is Costa Rica is in Central America. It's in the drug corridor, you know, between Latin America and the U.S. And so it has a lot of similar kinds of problems and dynamics there. But what happened in 1948 is that they had a civil war, a bloody civil war, where thousands of you know Costa Ricans were killed, and they really felt like it was enough. They really there was a, a, a rebel leader that became president of the country, and he sort of you know he and and the people were fed up. They didn't want to ever have that happen again, so they made dramatic decisions at that time intentionally to reset the course of the country. So what they did is they. Um, de invested in their military and really sort of took their army apart and took the funding from that and put it into education and put it into, you know, the economy, put it into the environment, development of environmental tourism. Um, and so they, they, but one of the things that they claim they did is they, they wanted to grow a new population. And so they, in their schools, they mandated what was called peace education, which is you know, tolerance and respect for others and conflict resolution skills and kind of basic social skills and attitudes that they, you know, encouraged all young people to develop. And they believe over time that helped grow a new society that, you know, was not about militancy and, and militarism, but was, you know, more about peace and tolerance and respect for others. So they, they intentionally reset and they grew a new society over time. And that's part of what I argue we need to do is really recognize how 
the levels of violence in our country, the levels of gun violence in particular, but all kinds of violence in our country, um, you know, and political violence, which has been on the rise for decades now. Um, it's, it's really time to take a hard look at that and reset. It is very hopeful that they, they actually set out to do it and they, they were uh, successful. Um, yeah. You mentioned some other countries. Can you give us another example? Yeah, so there are there are several that I mentioned in the book. You know, the, the Scandinavian countries are the kind of poster child for this because it was, you know, over 200 years ago that they used to, you know, war with one another and war with the world. And But they, you know, dec- a couple of centuries ago said, enough, we don't want to do this. Let's have a peace pact. Let's agree that we won't, you know, take each other's land and property anymore. And let's invest in you know, peace in our societies and take all of those resources that we put into militarism and put them into different places. So they, you know, they really made an intentional decision to do that as a cluster of nations or what we call peace systems. Um, But, you know, another small example is Mauritius. Mauritius is is the most peaceful nation in Africa. It's an island nation, and it has a you know, history of slavery and indentured servitude and, you know, oppression and all of the stuff that is familiar to Americans. But they, too, about 50 years ago said, enough of this, and we really need to change how we respond to each other. You know, it's a very multicultural nation. There's a lot of you know, Muslims and Hindus and Catholics and Christians. Um, but they, you know, they've created a culture, and they're very proud of the fact that they're the most peaceful, peaceful nation in Africa. They really celebrate that and recognize that as part of their identity. And that's part of this is, you know, you can choose to celebrate that and not being, you know, the, the, the world's warlord. You know? mm-hmm. It's an intentional choice that countries make. One factor you talk about under reset is uh, the fact that th- this can be a stalemate, right? Uh, you you could say, okay, yeah. I'll change if the person on the other side changes. Um, yeah. But you, yeah. you've done some work in the Middle East that uh, um, I, I guess you can break that stalemate. Yeah, so again, you know, if, if I believe that the other side, you know, say I'm a Republican and I believe all Democrats are stuck in their ways and they're never going to change— um, and this is what we've studied in the Middle East, is if a Palestinian or an Israeli believes that the other side is never going to change, our side isn't going to change, this we're stuck in this dynamic, then, you know, your options are to either disengage from the other in totally, if possible, or to fight them when you have to. And, it, and those are your only options. But what research finds is that if an Israeli hears a Palestinian who says, you know, I used to really believe in, in, in violence and in activism, but now I really, I, you know, I'm working for peace, and this is how I'm doing it, and this is why I changed. If you hear stories from the other side about the fact that many on the other side change and are not, you know, trying to undermine your security, but are trying to build, a, you know, a better set of relations, then it, it changes us. It gives us a sense of, okay, maybe there's a possibility. Maybe they're not all alike. Maybe there are folks on the other side that we can work with. And that can change the dynamic. And so, and that's true in America as well. If we see them all as a block of, you know, blue Americans that are elitist and stuck in their way and clueless, then we don't have many options other than to avoid them or fight them. But if we understand that, you know, both red and blue America 
are complicated places with a lot of different kinds of people living their lives in a lot of different ways. And many of them are also in this exhausted middle majority and want to change. If we recognize that, see that, actually hear examples of that, then it does change us and change our willingness to engage with them differently. The second action item or activity uh, you call, I think, bolster and break. What are you talking about there? Yeah. Well, so one of the things we've learned from study of international peace processes is that, you know, when the international community goes into a place like Angola that has been, had, you know, been suffering from a war and tries to, like, bring in new programs, and new ideas about how to make peace, it usually doesn't work. Usually what is most effective is when you go into a post-conflict zone and sort of say, who are the groups and individuals here that already have trust and are already doing positive things to bring the divided sides together? And if you can find them, that's what in organizational science they call positive deviance. When you find groups on the ground that have sprung up for their own reasons to try to bring people together in conversation over time, respectfully and facilitated ways, um, and and go and support them first, as opposed to bringing in some new idea from the outside. They're much more effective at mitigating violence or mitigating, you know, destructive conflict and promoting better relations. And then the example I want to highlight is if your listeners go to a website that's put out by Princeton University called the Bridging Divides Initiative. It's a website that has thousands. It's a map of America. And what this group has been doing is just finding all of the, you know, dialogue and, and, and um, conversation groups that are trying to bring red and blue Americas, Americans together, um, but that do so not arbitrarily by just saying go off and have a conversation, but that do so in ways that are safe and facilitated and, you know, informed by research. And the good news is there are thousands of them. There are some, somewhere between seven and 10,000 of these groups across the country. And if you go to this website, there's a map, and you can toggle in. It's an interactive map. And look in your community and see where those organizations are in your community, and you can go to them. And that's what we recommend you do first. You know, if, it's, it's like if you're in your family, if you're estranged with someone and you can't work it out or talk it out, you might ask yourself, well, who, is, who in my family can help with this? Well, it might be my oldest brother or it might be my grandmother. You know, we both love her. And maybe she can help us talk to each other. It's, it's the people that we know that can help. Well, it's the same thing in communities is that there are these organizations that are doing this work right now, simply knowing that, but more importantly, checking them out and going and talk to people there. And how do they do their work and how do they know it helps? Um, that's a first place people should start. You know, I'm on the site, bridgingdivides.princeton.edu. I've clicked on a couple in Utah, American Democracy Project yeah. and Action Utah. So there are some in Utah that people can check out. Yeah, great. There are. Great yeah. advice, yeah. Um, well, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, talk about some of the other uh, principles that you talk about in the book. Uh, things that we can do. Um, yeah. the, the Way Out is the name of the book, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, the subtitle. Peter Coleman is our guest, and we'll uh, have more following this break. 
Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with uh, Peter Coleman. Uh, he's author of the book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. We're talking about that, how to overcome it. Peter Coleman is professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. Uh, he directs the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. During the break, I checked out another couple of um, places in Utah by going to that site, Bridging Divides Initiative, I'll recommend the Village Square in Salt Lake City. There's another you can go to uh, that uh, that site from Princeton, and uh, as Dr. Coleman recommends, and to find places near you. Um, so, Dr. Coleman, we're we're going through your list of uh, five activities or principles to, to help us to uh, to find the way out of toxic polarization. Uh, we're up to the third one: complicate. What are you talking about here? Yeah. So. In times like these where we tend to oversimplify, you know, they're all alike or the issues are simple, you know, it's build a wall versus not build a wall for something like immigration. When we're oversimplifying our understanding of the problems, each other, ourselves, then what I recommend is that we sort of intentionally try to complicate our life. And one way to do that, so for example, what I do is... When something breaks on the news, when there's a news story that may have different political implications, what I intentionally do is not just watch the news that I find most you know, comforting and reaffirming of my values or point of view. I intentionally have identified a handful of people on the other side of the political divide who I oftentimes you know, disagree with politically, but who I think are smart well-intentioned, you know, decent people, informed people who are who have different points of view, but who can help me understand the kind of pros and cons of how to address one of these challenges or one of these problems. So when the news breaks, I intentionally, you know, go to those channels or I go to their Twitter feed or, I, you know, I, I want to not just listen to how my side understands the problem, but I want to have some pushback and some, again, in, intelligent, informed information. Doesn't mean I listen to, you know, kind of nut jobs on the extremes that are spousing crazy theories. What I want to know is, you know, it's easy for me to watch my news and feel comforted by it. It's harder for me to listen to contradictory advice. Um, but it's a really important thing. And I want to say, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a group in, in journalism in, in general called Solutions Journalism, that has been working on this. They're, they're looking at how journalists, how their business model and how their reporting style tends to polarize Americans. Because, you know, you take a story, you want it to be get a lot of attention, so you find provocative voices on both sides, and then you, you know, put a lot of distance between them, and you oversimplify what are oftentimes complicated issues. Um, and that way of reporting is part of the problem that we've been talking about. So they've been trying to think about how to, it's a project called Complicating the Narrative. How do they tell the news in a way that, you know, provides some context and some history to these problems, is still compelling and still offers insight, but doesn't oversimplify things automatically? And so that's a process that, again, science tells us helps in these situations where there is a pull to oversimplify, it's great to have some tactics and strategies to, you know, try to mitigate and reduce that tendency. 
Here I'll parenthetically put in a plug for uh, something Utah Public Radio is involved in, the Solutions Journalism Project, the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. You can check that out on our, our website. Um, so the, the fourth uh, principle is move. Uh, and th- this, yeah. is, this is not abstract psychological. You're talking about physically moving. Physically moving. So this is something that is new to my field because I'm, you know, I'm a mediator and I do a lot of conflict negotiation work. And usually we just get people to sit at a table and talk to each other about the problems or the differences they have. And most of the time that helps. But part of what I'm arguing here is that, you know, when these differences, how we feel and see the other side are rooted in like our neurological structures, right? Like what we are comfortable, the news we're comfortable watching versus that that we're just uncomfortable watching. When it's that deep, sometimes you need additional help. And one of the things that neuroscience research is telling us is that when people, disputants, get up physically and move when they ideally, you know, even if you're just moving and go and take a walk before you have a conversation, but ideally if you reach out to other people and move with them outside, side by side, there's something that happens neurologically. It's They're called mirror neurons. There's a, a connection that happens when people physically move together. We know this from the study of dance troops and from combat troops that march together or protest groups that march together, that move together, people that go out and work for Habitat for Humanity and build homes together. There's something about the physical work of moving together in sync that connects us, and we start to feel more of a sense of you know, connection and compassion and understanding of one another, even without conversation, just the physical act. So that's part of what I talk about in that chapter is what that means for you and your family. And, and, and the way I use it is, you know, there's a man in my building who has very different political views from me. And sometimes I get trapped in the elevator with him and it's frustrating because he likes to kind of, you know, talk his talk. And so at some point I said, look, would you take a walk with me? Would you be willing to just go to the park and take a walk with me outside? And that helped. Right. It, it got us into a kind of different dynamic where we're physically moving together. And even though we still fundamentally disagree, it changes the tenor of the conversations. So it's a it's a secret weapon, I think, if you want to build bridges to get people to move with you. Uh, the last of the five is adapt. Uh, tell us about this. So this is the hardest part of the book because what I'm arguing is that this is, you know, this problem that we're in, this cloud problem of political toxic polarization that we're in has taken decades to form these patterns that are so addictive. It's going to take us time and trial and error to get, figure our way out of this. It's not something that's going to be solved by one conversation or a simple fix. We're going to really have to you know, what I'm essentially calling for is a social movement of the exhausted middle majority to kind of reclaim our democracy and do the kinds of things we can do with the organizations, such as the organizations that you were citing earlier in Utah, that can, you know, start to make a difference in our lives, in our community lives. But one of the things we know from these kinds of interventions is that sometimes they backfire. Sometimes they don't work, you know. And so you really have to be adaptive, not just think, well, I tried it. You know, I I went and had a conversation with him, and it didn't work, and so I'm done. No, you know, you have to expect that this is going to be hard. It's possible. 
and we can make a big difference. But like Costa Rica, it's going to take time, and we're going to really have to commit to kind of a, a different way of relating to one another over time. Um, but we can get there. We can do it. But it's hard, and it will require us to be adaptive. Just have a couple minutes left. I want to put in a plug for the exercises on the website. Uh, uh, the, so the website is thewayoutofpolarization.com, thewayoutofpolarization.com. Uh, if you go to the top, there's a tab called Engage, and you click on Exercises, and there are exercises for each chapter, right? Um, so I just yeah. went I just went to Chapter 1, and uh, uh, Practicing Skills Exercise, Get Curious. This resonated with me. I'll just read this. This is, this is the first part of the exercise. So you answer the question, what is the most important to you in this conflict? Why does this conflict feel important to you? But then right next to it, uh, you answer the question, why do you think, uh, what do you think is most important to your counterpart in this conflict? Why do you think this conflict might feel important to your counterpart? I guess just kind of getting outside yourself. Yeah, and what a radical question to ask yourself, right? Going into a political conversation is like, what do you, why do you think, what's important to them? Why, you know, how did they get to this point of view? How do they see, why do they see the world this way? Those are really important questions. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to my colleague, Becca Bass, who um, de- helped me develop this website, worked extensively to create a bunch of, you know, again, reflection questions, exercises, quizzes, assessments that you can take for each of these chapters. You know, we've talked about these kind of five principles of reset, build and break, complicate, move and adapt. Well, um, all of them take rehearsal and take some experience, particularly the ones that we're least familiar with. And that's what the website offers is just some, you know, ways to, to begin that process if what you want to do is turn the temperature down, avoid civil war, and try to make America more functional to get again. Final question, just about a minute left. Are you hopeful? Do you do you, do you think we're <laughs> do you think we can uh, go the Costa Rica way? I am optimistic. I, I don't think you want to count Americans out. I think that we are a resilient people. I do think that despite all of these forces and the many bots that are you know turning us on each other, I do think that. We are a people that, once aware of how we're being manipulated and mistreated, can uh, self-correct. Um, and so I am, I am encouraged by the fact that many of us are exhausted and, and want something else. And the more that we can help people see what those alternatives are, the more likely we'll see change. Well, we'll leave it there. The book is The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, uh, important uh, work, well worth the read. Uh, Peter Coleman is the author. He is professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. He directs the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. Um, and again, the website, you can find out more and uh, look at those exercises, is thewayoutofpolarization.com. Uh, Professor Coleman, thank you so much. Appreciate the conversation. Oh, thank you. This was a pleasure. I really appreciate it, and um, I, I hope those in Utah will take advantage of the interview. Yeah, I hope so, too. Yes, thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Stocking Utah's waterways with sport fish is a practice that goes back more than a century, so long ago that many people may think these introduced species are native. Find out how this impacts Utah's true native fishes after this. 
I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Setting up beside a stream with a fishing pole on a hot summer afternoon is a popular Utah pastime, but not all fish are equally sought after. Accordingly, fish stocking practices in Utah's waterways have selected for certain species at the expense of less desirable fish, placing human preferences over ecology. Stocking fish is older than statehood. The first efforts in the 1880s intended to raise fish, such as German carp, for food. By 1900, fish and wildlife managers had shifted focus to sport fish, stocking rivers and streams with bass, catfish, and, of course, trout. Recreational fishers love catching trout, but Utah's native Bonneville cutthroat trout was endangered by that time due to overfishing and other human impacts on the environment. Utah's native chubs, suckers, and whitefish were disparaged by anglers and wildlife managers alike, considered to be trash fish, good for nothing but animal feed and fertilizer. Early fish stock management involved setting catch limits on trout, but not on the less desirable fish. By the 1950s, wildlife managers began drastic removal programs based on the assumption that these coarse fish were competing with rainbow and brook trout. This meant that state agencies poisoned the undesired fish with a selective toxicant. They also trapped fish on a large scale, removing 500 tons of trash fish in 1952 and 1953 alone. Compared to other western states' use of dynamite and electrical shocks to kill fish, Utah's methods were relatively mild. At the end of the 20th century, fish and wildlife managers turned toward preserving native species, including trash fish. But the practice of using toxicants to rid waterways of native fish still exists. Utah's Department of Wildlife Resources used this method as recently as 2021 to remove native chub from Navajo Lake, then stocked the lake with brook, tiger, and rainbow trout. The goal was to, quote, restore Navajo Lake as a prize trout fishery. While the chub may still be native, the state points out that these fish can dominate the ecosystem of an artificial reservoir like Navajo Lake. Still, there is no denying that humans prefer some species to others, and our wildlife management practices continue to reflect that. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.